Hey everyone, Ron Garen here. First, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to the Orbital Perspective podcast. What started out as a discussion around sheltering in place almost a year ago has turned into a discussion platform centered around making our world and our future better for everyone. Let's keep that discussion going. I also wanted to let you know that my next book, Floating in Darkness, A Journey of Evolution, launches on May 4th of this year. It's the sequel to my first book, The Orbital Perspective, and goes much deeper into solving the challenges that our world faces and how we can come together as one to create solutions. It's part autobiography, part action movie, part love story, with a message of unity that I would like to share with the world. For my loyal podcast listeners, I'm offering a 25% discount off the retail price. To get the savings, simply go to floatingindarkness.com forward slash order and enter the code PODCAST to save 25%. It's good for the next 48 hours, and it's my way of saying thanks for joining me on this incredible journey towards a better future. And now, on with the show. Welcome to the Orbital Perspective Podcast, where we dolly zoom out to a perspective where upcoming megatrends become visible. Every day, it is more and more apparent that we are in the midst of the great transition. Everything is changing rapidly. The fundamentals of business, government, and society are being rewritten almost on a daily basis. We are truly living during a time where the riskiest course of action is to stay the course. The most hazardous path is to take the tried and true. We are also living during a time where it is becoming more and more apparent that the status quo is not working. At least it's not working for everyone. And until the status quo is working for everyone, we will do nothing more than slap temporary band-aids on our problems and our challenges. We are presently dealing with crisis after crisis. But these crises can serve as a wake-up call. They can be our call to action to incorporate the changes necessary to make us all more resilient and better equipped to deal with the future crises that will undoubtedly come our way. The Orbital Perspective is all about transcending the divisive walls that separate us and embracing the awe and wonder of our shared humanity. What all the guests on the Orbital Perspective podcast have in common is they are all able to see things from a slightly different perspective. And when we look at issues from different perspectives, we see things in stereoscopic vision. Multiple perspectives allow us to see the depth of a situation below the two-dimensional us-versus-them surface. The other thing all our guests have in common is that they are all proof that you don't have to be in orbit to have the orbital perspective. Now, this is not an interview, and it's also not just a conversation between two friends. It's a conversation amongst all of us. If you're listening live, please post your questions and your comments so that we can bring you into the conversation. And if you're listening to the recorded conversation, still please join in with your comments and questions and be a part of this evolving community. Thank you for being here and being a part of this conversation from the Orbital Perspective. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Orbital Perspective. I'm Really excited. I got a good friend on today, uh, and uh, I think we're going to have a really uh, interesting conversation because we're at a pivotal point in human history right now. We're at a point uh, where there's a fork in the road, <laughs> and uh, we need to go on the on the path that will be a bridge to the future that we want to be a part of. So building bridges to the future, that's a cliche, uh, or it's used as a cliche, but uh, it really is true. There's In my lifetime, in my memory. There's never been a time where building bridges over divisive waters is, <laughs> is, uh, has never been more important. And uh, our guest today uh, is someone who is building actual bridges to the future, uh, Avery Bang. Uh, and uh, I, I think it's going to be a wonderful conversation, and, and I'm really looking forward to it. So with that, let me introduce my friend Avery. Avery Louise Bang believes that every person has a right to safe access to basic services. And she has built an organization that embraces that belief. Under her leadership as the CEO, 
Bridges to Prosperity has physically connected more than 1 million people around the world to essential healthcare, education, and economic opportunities. By building footbridges that connect the rural last mile, Bridges to Prosperity has been recognized with many awards, including the Rockefeller Foundation's Next Century Innovators Award, the Ashton Award for Sustainability, the Malago Foundation Rainer Arnold Fellowship, the Gerson Learman Group Social Impact Fellowship, and as a member of YPO, the Young Presidents Association. As an active public speaker, Avery has reached varied audiences, ranging from the United Nations to the TED stage. She was featured in the IMAX film Dream Big, which was awarded the coveted President's Medal by the American Society of Civil Engineers. Avery was named one of the world's top 25 most newsworthy engineers by Engineering News Record and was honored as one of the top 15 women CEOs who have impacted the world. She holds bachelor degrees in civil engineering and in studio art from the University of Iowa, a master's in geotechnical engineering from the University of Colorado Boulder, and an MBA from the University of Oxford. Please help me welcome Avery Bang. Hi, Avery. Hey, How you doing? Good to see you. Good to see you, too. It's quite the intro. Appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. you, you guys do amazing work. Amazing I just need to borrow that video. You know, send it's that all, out. It's all, it's all yours. It's so good to see you. Um, it's been it's been a few weeks um, or a few months, uh, maybe maybe more than a few weeks, uh, but uh, to however long it has been, it's been too long. Um, and so uh, thanks thanks for uh, coming on the show. Um, that is a really amazing intro because you guys are doing amazing work. So why don't we just start there? What, can you can you just tell everybody about Bridges to Prosperity? How you got involved? What the idea is? What's the what's the main objective? Absolutely. So, you know, the root cause of poverty for over a billion people is that they are physically isolated and can't get to where they need to go. So if you kind of chew on that, that's like one in seven people around the world are trying to get to school. They're trying to get to a healthcare clinic. They're trying to get to a job, trying to get their farm goods to market and they're isolated. And so as that is a kind of a constraint analysis on how do people actually begin to thrive you kind of look at what's the most effective way and efficient way to be able to solve that isolation for the most people for the most cost effective way. And it's bridges and not bridges that big cars or big buses are going over, but bridges that people walk over or aspirational start to use a bicycle or one day we'll have a moto taxi. And, you know, I think my story to come into that was, um, you know, a long time ago, the six, 15, 16 years. And I was living in Fiji and had that kind of felt lived experience of trying to get to communities to help um, essentially teach the importance of early breast cancer detection uh, through a foundation. And we would get out to community A or B, but then you're starting to try to get to C, D or E and you're stuck at the river. And you're making this impossible decision. Do you swim through it? Do you turn around? Is the water tonight gonna be the same level as, as this morning? And it's all kind of cascaded from that um, understanding really what life was like not being able to get where, where you need to go. And the rest is somewhat history. Yeah, I mean, I mean, there's a, there's an, there's a literal importance to that, you know, get, getting people to, like you said, to livelihood, to school and et cetera. But there's a, there's a metaphorical meaning to that too, that, that you can't help but miss is, is, you know, building that bridge that provides that access to those services, uh, opens up a whole new world. I want to remind everybody that this is not just a conversation between Avery and I, it's a, it's a conversation amongst all of us. So jump on those comments, uh, send your questions, send your comments, uh, send your thoughts. Uh, we want you to be a, be a part of that. I was trying to think, how, how long have we known each other? What? You know, I, I should have figured this out before our talk, but we can work this out together. So we were down in the Johnson Space Center together sometime when I was a graduate student. I think that was probably 2007-ish. Maybe that was the first time. Um, Muganero in Rwanda, I can't remember if that was before or after. That was sometime in 2007, 2008, maybe overlap there. Yeah, yeah. Ballpark, yeah. you know. I, I, I have a vague memory of, a, of an event at the Kennedy Space, or not at Kennedy, at Coco, in Cocoa Beach. <laughs> oh man, oh man, was I Mario? You were Mario, yeah. Yeah, okay. It was a Halloween. <laughs> All right, I think Evan's jumping in to help us out. He's saying it's 2005, so. 
Thank you, Evan, for helping. <laughs> so um, we've known each other for a while. You've been in the, uh, should I say, development uh, arena for all that time, uh, sustainable development, humanitarian uh, projects throughout the world. Um, and now you're running this organization, Bridges to Prosperity. Um, when did you when did you take over uh, at the helm of the organization? Well, at the time that we I first started bridge building with B2P, there weren't any full-time employees. So it was it's a little bit of a weird transition from volunteer to first staff. You know, that effectively means I'm going to go raise the money to pay myself. Um, but I officially kind of took over as the executive director of sorts in, I think, 2010, um, when I'd finished my graduate uh, thesis in engineering focused on these trail bridges somewhere around like 2007 or no, 2008, 2009. Yeah. yeah I, I do see Evan is, is listening. So just, just to let you know, Evan, I borrowed your power cord. <laughs> Hope that's okay. Um, we had a little technical difficulty before the podcast started. Um, so why don't we dive into a little bit about, um, some of the, some of the communities that you've been involved in, uh, some of the, maybe the case studies of, of what the before and after picture was in these communities, um, you know, and, you know, some of these, some of these um, interventions, if I, if I can call that, have been going on for years now. And there's, so there should be some pretty good data on uh, what the effects were. Can you share any of that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think a couple parts of like the before and after is that each community is pretty dramatically different, but if you could kind of like imagine a generalization, most of the places where we work, um, the government is prioritizing that piece of the access you know, connection uh, because people have lost their lives there. So we're not just talking about an inconvenience. We're talking about people are literally being swept away today in 2020 in rivers around the world um, just because it is a, a need to be able to get to somewhere. So you're, you could be losing a child or a grandchild or an aunt or you could be losing your horse. Um, and that's a big part of our story of our why is it's not only being able to create more economic prosperity, which I'll get to in a minute, better health outcomes, better education, but there's also a level of dignity to know that you live on the wrong side of the tracks in a more literal sense, mm -hmm. uh, and that you actually have the ability to reach some of those um, same services that you're, you know, could be even your aunt lives on the other side of the river has access to. Um, but your point's really well taken, just getting the well, of course a bridge makes sense, is I think a little naive to imagine that people should just believe me and be like, yeah, of course, Avery, bridges are amazingly important, right? Uh, so we've invested very heavily in the last um, four, five, six years on partnering with academic institutions and researchers so they can give a good look at both what we're doing well, um, what are the, um, you know, the kind of impacts or effects of access on livelihoods, and what are we not doing well? Like maybe we believe we're helping kids get to school, but by having research teams come in, um, we can actually get a, a felt sense of if that's true or not. And I think something that might be obvious, I know Ron, you and I've talked about this quite a bit, but there's a certain amount of data collection that's important in your own business that you're trying to you know, incorporate the monitoring efforts. And it's good for making business decisions, it's good for just your, you know, your ability to execute. That we have a tremendous focus on how many people are going to use our bridges, roughly where are they coming from and where are they going, number of bridges, that sort of thing. It's kind of like monitoring information. But when you get into like what really is happening for you, for me, if we lived in a place and all of a sudden had access, the attribution around that, you really have to be able to control. So you have to compare regions and places and say, hey, you know, community Ron gets a bridge, community Avery doesn't. And let's do longitudinal studies um, over a number of years to really tease out the attribution of access on not only economics, but health and education. Um, and we just had our first RCT, or randomized control trial paper get published, um, gosh, a couple of weeks ago now in Econometrica. Uh, some researchers from Yale, Notre Dame and ASU uh, were able to look at our projects and show that household level income rise um, ends up being over 30%. So, like, imagine if you and Carmel had 30% higher incomes from your speaking fees. Like, you know, not, not insignificant, right? Um, and that's huge because it's not only for the two of you, but, like, imagine it's the entire town of Boulder then has that access. So we invest heavily in making sure the impact of what we're trying to do um, is validated not only internally with our monitoring, but externally with research as well. 
So, I mean, I'm sure that, that an increase in household income equates to an increase in, in health and wellness in those communities. Have there been studies along those lines as well? I mean, just common sense would dictate that that would, that would be the case, but. This is what I wish you could like pop in one of your audience members and he could respond to this. So Evan, correct us on the chat, please. But um, we're doing a follow on research right now uh, study that's much larger than the first uh, control trial that we did. It's in Rwanda. And a big part of being able to tease out health and education outcomes is those are less frequent events. And so whereas household level income, you know, I could call you every week and I could say, hey, what did you buy this week? What did you spend? What did you invest in for your house? More chickens, et cetera. Um, and that's a large sample size, we, thousands of people per one bridge. But being able to get to school or being able to get to healthcare is a less frequent event relative to a weekly call about income. And so you have to have a much larger sample size. So the first study we did was comparing, I think it was 12 communities with bridges compared to about the same amount without. Um, Evan and his team here at the University of Colorado Boulder at the Mortensen Center are leading a 200 bridge study, and much larger, which will be able to capture some of those um, important social uh, health um, impacts. And, and how many countries are you? Uh, do you have projects in? So we're currently really focused in East Africa. So Rwanda and uh, Uganda are the places where we're investing most heavily. Uh, throughout the history of the organization, we have worked in over 20 countries. So um, pretty global. And there's a, there's the uh, answer from Dr. Thomas. It says a 200 site, five year study funded by USAID to examine health, economic and educational benefits of the bridges. Also working with NASA funded partners to model the impacts of climate and weather on bridge use. So cool. So let's talk about the metaphorical part of it. Yeah. Well, maybe maybe before we go on to that, let, before, one, one other thing I want to talk about is um, I, I don't imagine that bridges have a lot of maintenance, but they must have some type of long-term servicing to make sure that they're still safe and everything else. So how, how, what's the model for that? Yeah, absolutely. So a big part of how we come in and build the bridge to begin with is it's a government-led and government-funded program. And that's not only, you know, important from a philosophical perspective, but it's important because once you have that bridge that's built, if you have a precedent that the district or the government are paying for that, uh, we call it CapEx, capital expenditure up front, uh, the likelihood that the OpEx and operational expenses are paid um, should follow. The reality is there's a huge underlying you know, uh, infrastructure there to make sure that when projects are um, being built, that it's not just you know you and I flying in and building them and there's no technology or no material um, or no expertise that's local. That would be unethical, frankly. So we're really invested heavily in the folks that build these and the, and the materials that are being used are as hyper-local as possible. And then we do go back and we revisit structures to make sure that the government is actually including them in their inspection and maintenance program. Um, if they're not, you know, a really good example could be there could be a decking issue. Uh, we won't actually proceed and move forward um, in doing new projects in that district until that last maintenance project um, essentially hits the budget. Yeah, I think that's that's so important. I know that you know, and a lot of the people that are watching know that there's an undue amount of focus that's put on the, the start of new projects versus the maintenance of existing projects. And, you know, everybody wants the picture of the people crossing the, you know, cutting the ribbon and, cut, and crossing the bridge for the first time or getting that first clean drink of water from a new, you know, hand, uh, hand pump <laughs> that's installed in a well. Uh, there's, and so that's what all the fundraising is, is around those getting those new pictures and, and all of that splashy stuff, but it's, uh, it, it hurts those communities when the same level of effort is not put into maintaining the systems that are already there. And I, and I applaud, applaud you for, for what you're doing on that. Um, and then uh, I, think, I think Joshua is applauding you as well. <laughs> Thank you, Avery. You're such an inspiration. Um, so let's, let's shift gears and uh, let's talk about metaphorically building bridges because I know that you've seen, uh, you know, Anybody with eyes knows that we're living in, in very divisive times, uh, and uh, and we we can use this metaphor uh, of building bridges uh, over this over, over the divisiveness. And I know you have some thoughts on that. Uh, would you like to share any of those? 
Well, the funny thing is, I, maybe even the first time you and I met, I can't remember this, but most of the time people hear I'm a bridge builder and their assumption is it's figurative. You know, there's like this like literal, <laughs> you said, lost on almost everyone. Uh, you like, Google search charities that do bridges, you'll find this like really long list and like yeah. none of them are actually doing bridges. Um, but I think it's 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 um, in the business that both you and I are in are building both figurative and literal bridges. And I think that the figurative ones are the ones that really wake me up in the morning and get my juices flowing. You know, I think um, you know, I'm ne not nearly as prolific as you are uh, in terms of like really spreading the important messages of your experience. But when I do have the opportunity to speak with um, you know audiences ranging from a group of first graders in Iowa to you know could be much bigger. I'm really focused on how can we kind of ilk out the sense of like, we can all find something that we're passionate about that we can contribute to. Mm -hmm. I don't need everyone to be bridge builders. Please don't, you know, work me out of a job. But like, I need everyone to find things just like you're talking about. Like, you know, we are in a day and age where I think your intro says this really poignantly, like to, to, to not change is the most dangerous pathway forward. And if everyone can kind of see and own and feel that, um, and find ways to connect with one another. Um, I think we would all be a little bit better off. So, yeah, I mean, I mean, I started out this episode talking about how we're at a crossroads, right? Or another way to look at it is an inflection point, right? We, I truly believe that we are about to cross over into a new human epoch. We are leaving the old human epoch behind, and we're entering a new human epoch. And we need a bridge to get over that, right? And so the old human epoch. It, it, there was nothing wrong with it. It got us to where we're at today. It was, it served its purpose and um, it was characterized by, um, you, you know, just unfettered, you know, uh, unrestricted uh, exploitation of natural resources, um, it, conquest and competition at all costs, you know, profit maximization at all costs, um, you know, on and on and on all of these things, you know, blind ind independence, uh, failure to recognize the interdependent nature of all things. Uh, it worked for a while and it worked, it worked well for a while, but we're crossing into new territory. And when you cross into new territory, you need a bridge to get over it. And so I think we're crossing into where we finally really uh, embrace the reality that we are all interdependent. There's, there's, you can't exist in, in an independent community or nation or, or even planet in the solar system. We're in, interdependent with the rest of the universe and uh, with every species on this planet in particular. And that we have to be a partner with things like the biosphere of earth and, and things like that. And we need to recognize that, that, you know, what happens on one side of the planet happens, you know, everywhere and, and it ripples out in all directions. And so I, that all sounds, that all can sound to some folks as, as platitudes, but there's, there's a underlying, concrete reality in that, that it's becoming clear. That's coming, becoming really clear. We've been talking about this stuff, you know, unity for years, but, you know, things like this pandemic have, sh have shown that we're all in this together is not a cliche. <laughs> we truly are all in this together. We truly are all in the same boat. Um, and, or I guess we could use your analogy, walking across the same bridge. How about that? So I, I wanted to, I, I, I mean, I, you're a visionary, um, and uh, it, it, it shows in the work that you're doing and how you how you do your job and the success that you've had. Uh, what is your vision for the future? What 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 do you see the future? Well, let me back up a second. Do you agree with the with the with the assumption that we're at this, this crossroads? And can you can you in in your in your vision talk about if you agree with that premise that each each fork of the of the crossroad where it leads to and how we get there. Yeah, I think I think your point, like just the, the zeitgeist right now of feeling so connected around the pandemic is um, perhaps in some way confirming what certainly I know you've experienced in your career as you pull out and you're seeing literally the entire uh, earth. You know, my mine has been a little bit obviously more myopic, but I've been spending the last 15 years seeing more similarities than differences. So whether I'm spending time living in, uh, you know, Latin America or East Africa or back in, in Colorado, like you start to see that the, the fabric of humankind is actually much more similar than not. And I think to your point that perhaps uh, some of the structures that have served us, we'll call it well, or have not failed us to date um, might be in question for the most significant 
They're crumbling. Uh, crumbling, right. Mm. And, and maybe maybe they haven't been serving us and we just are finally seeing that. That's maybe part of the question, but I definitely agree with that. And I think, you know, part of, uh, you know, part of what I think is important in like, at least my industry and my space of international development is that there's a longstanding history of doing our best to be able to work with and empower uh, essentially the folks that you're trying to um, serve or to benefit. So in my case, we're trying to work with Rwandese to make Rwanda more connected, right? But at some level, there's also this colonial structure that's just implicit. Like I'm pulling money out of the Western market, whether it's an individual donor or a company or a foundation, and doing my best to band-aid what is actually a much more macro level issue of like the unfair trade agreements between our countries are actually much more debilitating uh, on the whole than our band-aid of helping build bridges. Even though that band-aid is wildly impactful and super important and needed, the reality is that if we could actually level set and say, hey, you know, what are actually what is actually happening on under, you know, in the political space, um, there'd be a very different conversation being had right now. Yeah, I mean this this I'm in a studio right now in the Mortenson Center for, for Global Engineering, um, which uh, one of the things that the Mortenson Center is working on under the leadership of Dr. Evan Thomas is uh, looking at those underlying systemic uh, issues that um, that really make us realize that a lot of the things that we're doing is just slapping temporary band-aids uh, on, on things. As, as important that, as that is in the short term, it's not gonna get us to where we wanna get in the, in the long term. And I think that's a, that really highlights, I think, uh, a lot of the misperceptions that are out there. Misperceptions on, on the poor, misperceptions on how to alleviate poverty and things like that. And I know, you know both of us have, have worked with people in destitute poverty and I know the first time uh, I experienced that, I, I was blown away. It was not what I expected at all. Um, and I had been conditioned to think certain things um, and to maybe attribute uh, in a disproportionate amount of, of the reason why people are in poverty uh, was an assumption that a lot of that was within their control, that they could, they could control um, whether or not they were in poverty. They just needed to work harder or whatever. Uh, and that wasn't the case at all. There were systemic things like not having access to a school because there's a, you know, a river that you have to risk your life uh, to cross, um, things like that. Um, did you, did you, what are, and, and some of the misconceptions about you know, rich Western countries following these billions of dollars to developing nations um, not knowing that more money is coming back from those nations a lot of times. And, and sometimes it's just, it's just a pay, debt payment of interest of, of stuff that's been more than paid off, you know, decades ago. Um, and so there's, there is uh, systemic problems out there. What are some of the things that when you first got into this, this line of work that, that changed your perception or your perspective? Yeah. I actually going to push this back to you, then I'll answer that. When when did you first get exposed uh, to what you might consider kind of the more the full arc of wealth and, and destitute poverty? Well, I, I think well, one of the things that got redefined was my definition of what it means to be in poverty, and I think that happened on that first trip to Rwanda back in two thousand and six. Yeah. You know, I I had seen people obviously in the United States that that are defined below the poverty line. Uh, but I don't think I ever really experienced people that were living on less than a dollar a day um, that didn't ha that had literally nothing to, to and, and f whole families that were living in that in that um, in that situation. Um, and these same people were, uh, you know, ingenious. They were they were coming up with all these ways to try and better their situation. Um, and, and because of the circumstances that they were under, they were unsuccessful time and time again. It wasn't from a lack of trying. It wasn't a lack, from a lack of effort. Uh, it was just, it was, it was because of things beyond their control, literally, really, um, literally beyond their control. Yeah. That's an interesting, yeah, maybe about the same timing then. So it's, you know, in that time right about when we met, I think was from my first experience of really understanding how many people, I think, I don't know, Ron, like I have both of like, what are the people's reality that they live in hits me at a core, like human level, but also the quantity of people like that for some reason, maybe as an engineer, it's like, this is wild. And I think for a long time, my journey was first 
um, you know, how could we do technology to, to help? Because if for this thing, so like yeah. we'll use bridges in an you know, example, if for just like we could teach them how to build a bridge or if for we could help them get safe drinking water technology or a stove, et cetera, like things would be better. And I think for a long time, I really believed that. I think like a lot of us in the space, you have to have this personal journey of, you know, what are the root causes of this poverty and, oh, I can help fix it within its own right is, is very, uh, you know, there's a, there's a lot of um, things to be said about that naivety, but to come in and say, I think we can solve that problem for you to your point is actually so disempowering. Right. Like the, the reason the capital is not there to build your own infrastructure or to be able to have those stoves or that safe water is, is oftentimes something that is, you know, so many degrees removed from that person that is walking around barefoot living on a dollar a day. And I think that that for me has evolved over time. And so just like Dr. Evan Thomas and you and I, we really now are like trying to focus on what are some of the root causes of the systems change that need to happen. And that's not actually getting the bridge technology like on an open source platform so people can build it. It's not giving people water or stoves. It's saying like- well, those, that, that, those, I don't think those hurt, but that's not the answer, right? That's not the answer. Like that, that is a Band-Aid. And yeah. so I think the piece, and this is obviously my life's work to date, and this is something I'm really passionate about, but we have to really take a hard look at like, how are we uh, complicit to some of these, um, you know, reasons why the money is not there or the reasons that that infrastructure is not being built or these reasons why people are not having equal access to school. And I think it's a much harder conversation um, than to just say that we want to have some sort of technology fix. You right. know, it's a it's a policy level thing, I think, in a lot of cases. Well, it's a holistic answer, right? It's all of the above, right? Starting, yeah. with, starting with systemic uh, systems change. So, well, everybody jump in this conversation. We want you to be a part of it. So ask your questions to Avery uh, or me uh, and uh, give us your comments and we'll, we'll get you into this conversation. Josh, thanks for helping translate for Fatima. I know my Spanish isn't solid enough to try to toggle over and do that right now. So your support is really well appreciated on the comment section. <laughs> so so um, you started, I guess, basically back in 2006, working in impoverished communities around the world and you've been doing it ever since. Um, and so where, where do you see, where do you see the future? Where, 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 where do you, what are your long-term goals for both your career and, and the organization that you lead? I think where we are kind of getting to as an organization is a realization that this within its own right of rural access is a solvable problem. There are lots of intractable and unsolvable problems in the world. This is not one of them. And so to be able to think about how could an organization shift from being a literal bridge builder into the more figurative type? How right. can we enable governments to procure this infrastructure, make sure the money is available um, as best possible to do so, and helping the local private sector to be able to bid and build this work. That's kind of the vision of how we could imagine a future in my lifetime where all of the bridges globally are needed are actually solved. Um, I mean, I could probably go on, but that's probably the, the big punchline. Well, I'm curious. I, I want to like. I know the conversation here. You're good. You're always always a good questioner. So I'm going to make it. You know, also be a good answer. So like, as I was reading your book, you know, Floating in Dark was a, such an awesome story. But I, I have some curiosity for you about like. Obviously, if once everyone goes and reads it, they'll hear about this. But like, what are some of your uh, red threads of what you think is going to be in the future? And as we hit this nexus point, I'm you know kind of curious how you've been digesting that. Well, I mean, to answer you, I'm going to start out with doing something I don't remember ever doing before, which is disagree with you. Oh, no. I, I don't believe that there are intractable, intractable unsolvable problems. Okay, I think, that. I think that every challenge and problem facing us is solvable. And I think it's just our mindset that leads us to believe that. Like, I truly believe that it's possible to lift every single person on the planet out of poverty and to do it in a way uh, that doesn't destroy the the environment or destroy the biosphere in the process, right? And so I, I do think that's that's possible. Uh, I, I think that we we need to get outside of those systemic um, injustices, for lack of a better word, that that our society is built on right now that prevents a lot of that from happening. Um, but uh, where do I see the future going? Um, yeah. So it, it, it depends. Like I said, we're on a crossroad. Uh, if we continue down the, the road that we're on right now, which is 
an exponential increase in divisiveness and polarization and uh, us versus them two-dimensional thinking and short-term thinking and and short attention spans and and uh, uh, an absence of truth and data and, and real evidence-based thinking uh, and critical ra rational thinking, that leads to disaster. So we as a species cannot continue down that path uh, and we can't continue, to continue that down that path and survive. Uh, maybe we can do it for a little while, but eventually it'll, it'll all come crashing down. So what that means is that the only viable path is to get off that path and get onto a, a different path, a, a path leading to a, a greater level of profound unity. Uh, again, this is not a buzzword. It, it's, it's, it's basically we have, it's, it's the realization that we have real uh, problems facing us, real problems facing us on a, on a planetary scale. And in order to solve those real problems, those seemingly intractable, seemingly unsolvable problems, we have to do that in the context of the real world. And in the context of the real world is the uh, incredibly complex, interrelated, interdependent, you know, billions of variables <laughs> the type of situation that we're in, uh, which is not beyond our capability to uh, do. But we can't do it from a, from a narrow special interest guided view. Uh, we have to take in the whole big picture and realize the short-term and long-term effects. What, what I use in the book is a, a term that I, that I borrowed from cinematography called dolly zoom. Mm -hmm. And dolly zoom a situation, well, in, in cinematography, it means that we are either dollying the camera back as, as the lens is zooming in or vice versa. And it, it shifts the perspective, right? It broadens the perspective. It gives height and depth to the scene. And so we need to give height and depth to these situations. And when you dolly zoom a situation or a challenge or a problem, what we're doing is we're, we're zooming out to the largest geographical uh, view or perspective we can, but we're doing that without losing sight of the worm's eye details on the ground. We don't zoom out to the point where people become statistics or, or numbers on a chart. They, they, they remain valuable members of the, of the human family. We zoom out to the long-term, and by long-term, I mean multi-generational. We do that without losing the importance of the short-term. So we don't focus you know, um, unduly on either end of that. And so uh, we also look at things at multiple, from multiple points of view, right? And so when you look at things, like in the introduction to, the, to this podcast, it says when you look at things from two different points of view, you, you see things in stereoscopic vision. vision. From multiple points of view, you see the, the true depth of the situation. So that's where the term, you know, strength from diversity comes in. Diversity means a diverse set of perspectives. You're looking at a problem from different perspectives. There's un unbelievable strength in that. If we if we all stay in our echo chamber <laughs> walled boxes, then we don't have the the that other those other perspectives to help us shape the true depth and meaning and, and understanding of, of a situation or a problem. And so I know this is a very long answer to your question, but to get on the right fork, we need to start implementing all of these things. We need to dolly zoom. We need to, we need to, to embrace our diversity. We, we do that without giving up any of our independence. We don't, we do that without, you know, being a planetary citizen doesn't make you any less American or German or Russian or, or Rwandan or whatever else. It just, as a matter of fact, it makes all of those cultural and national identities richer because it's in the in the fabric of of the overarching human society that exists on this planet. And from that, incredible strength comes. And from that, all those intractable and unsolvable problems can potentially be solved. How much of this came to you and in, in like it's it's been culminating over the last few decades, whether you're spending time in space or whether you're just moving through your life and raising three beautiful children. And how much of that came to you when you're writing? Um, well, I couldn't, they came both ways. So, so the subtitle of the book is a journey of evolution. And you'll notice like, like there, there's a guy, Keith Cowing, who I don't know if he's listening right now, but if you are pop in the comments, but I, I, I gave him an excerpt to, to read. And one of the things that, and he, he's, uh, he's in charge of NASA watch. That's, uh, that's his, uh, his, uh, um, online platform. And so one of the things he, he said, you know, I'm, I'm really a stickler on this. I don't like using the word mankind. Like you should use humanity, right? Because, and I agree with that, that mankind, there's, there's, you know, more than just men in society, right? So humanity is a more accurate term. And I agree with that. It's not just that, you know, it's politically correct or whatever. I do agree with that. But the, the subtitle of the book is a journey of evolution. And through the book, 
the, the language changes. In the beginning of the book, I did use the word mankind. And at the end of the book, I didn't use the word mankind, I used humanity. So a lot of that was, was planned because I, was, you know, I, was, I had an idea of the arc that I wanted to write, but a lot of that evolution occurred as I was writing it. And as a matter of fact, when the manuscript was completed, I had some experiences afterwards and I had some additional insights afterwards, months afterwards, that it dawned on me, oh, that's why I wrote that. Now I understand what it, that meant when I was writing it because I didn't understand it at the time. And so there's a, there's a, a lot of that, there's a lot of evolution that comes through the process of writing itself. And there's a lot of evolution that w just because of the time frame that's covered uh, in the book. Yeah, I was just curious because, you know, it's one of those things where a lot of us write to process. I'm not sure if you're like that. Maybe. And so it's just like imagining and reading your book and, and, and starting from literally conception, not to give too much away to your readership that haven't yet had the chance to read it. But all the way until today, there's like, how much of this has Ron actually been living with? And how much like has come forth because you've had the time and the deliberate effort to put this into writing. And I was just curious that, you know. Well, like I mean, the, the book is, so, so the book is an autobiographical narrative that I use as a tool, uh, as a metaphor, an allergy, allegory to, um, for the, the evolution of society, right? And it, and as you know, it was written in first person present tense. So it, it reads like a novel, but it's not, but it's a, but it's not fiction. It's, it's a nonfiction book. Um, and so uh, a lot of that stuff was written at the time, it was written in place at that time. Um, so it, this book, basically the first writing started in 1990 for this book. Really? I didn't know that. Yeah. So it's been a long time in the making. Um, so all right, we're, get, we're getting some uh, comments in that maybe we could, uh, here's, here's one from, uh, from Joshua Avery, what is your most favorite memory in your work? Oh, Joshua, that's a good one. Um, good question. So one of the first bridges that I ever had the chance to build, um, actually my very first one, is in the Peruvian Andes. So you're up at like 10,500 feet. And my Spanish at that time was even worse than it is now. And just didn't really understand quite what it was like from an empathic perspective for a, a child to be isolated. I mean, I kind of intellectually knew it, and that's why I was building this bridge. But I made friends with this very sweet four-year-old Rolio, and he would show up every day with his dad. So his dad's a bit of a mason type. You know, he was kind of one of the guys that would help you know everything from excavation to rock building effectively. And he would just sit there and like perch and like watch. And in order to do, to get to either side of the the river because it was dry season. Um, we had to use the same method that Rolio was using to go with his older sister to school. And it was just these braided vines, which I know for those of you that are on video right now, you can maybe watch me sitting here braiding my figurative hands. But if you're on podcast later, just close your eyes and imagine that there's a bunch of these vines that have dried out and been on this hillside and then you're braiding just like hair. And this is not that stable looking <laughs> and I'm terrified. And here I am at 20, 21 years old. Like, you know, there's two of these braided vines and I'm swinging and I'm like, you know, all sorts of panic and sweat coming out of my body. And here goes Rolio every day, back and forth, you know, coming and going and watching us. And I think, you know, one of my most fond memories was when we first opened that bridge on that first day. And this is giant hug. And, you know, I think that that's part of the experience, like I was sharing earlier on, that's like shared humanity much more similar than different. It's like the world over, everywhere I've ever spent time had the chance to really become as integrated as anyone ever could be. Um, I'm sharing meals and breaking bread and you're being loved on by these kids and saying, hey, I can go to school now. Um, so I think, you know, some of those memories are the, the ones that really drive me, um, you know, most, especially on the hard points in time. Yeah, you know, I I'll, I'll share something too, because what really touched me on my trips to, to developing uh, areas, you know, remote impoverished areas was our shared humanity. Um, and, you know, I remember giving a presentation to, to orphans in an orphanage in Rwanda on space exploration and the, the awe and wonder in their eyes and the questions and everything else was, is universal. Um, and then I, that same trip, and this was back in 2006, I remember give, giving, and so the orphans ranged from like infants to, to teenagers, but then I gave uh, uh, another presentation to a group of, I'd say 
high schoolers, maybe um, age kids. And it was the the setting, the venue was a small chapel on the, on the hospitals in in, in Luganera, right? And that chapel had never been, had not been opened since the genocide, because there was a, there was a massacre in the in the in the chapel uh, during the genocide, and so they opened it for this event for me to come in and and give a talk to the students. So the first real event they had uh, since the genocide was was that talk, and there were still bullet bullet holes on the walls and and blood stains on the wall. I mean, it was horrific. But here we were in that chapel with, I don't know, 30 or 40 kids learning about space and, you know, the potential future of our planet and our, and our species. And, you know, just the dichotomy of that, you know, the juxtaposition of that reality of the, of the moment and what the horrible past of the hope in the moment and, and, the, and the joy and the, and the curiosity and the awe and wonder of the moment versus the path that, you know, the path of that geographic spot uh, was just really um, a very, very powerful experience. I imagine that that speaks to the resilience of human nature. Exactly. exactly. It, d it definitely does. Um, so let me uh, let me pop up a comment here from Brandy. Uh, Brandy's grateful that we're showcasing Bridges to Prosperity's efforts to solve isolation caused poverty. Uh, people can learn more at Bridges to Prosperity. It doesn't say .org, but I think you want .org, right? You know, some of these fancy link tree things, I think you actually don't need .org. That's going to take you to a link with our website and probably some other stuff. So I think, okay. I think that's good. But but I'm, seeing one, I'm seeing one from, from Donna. So I feel obliged to make sure that everyone here listening knows your book and how someone can find that uh, so, the, so the new book is called Floating in Darkness, A Journey of Evolution. Uh, and if you just go to rongarren.com, there's, there's a bunch of ways to, to find out more about it. Awesome. Thank you for that. Boy, you're, you're, you're really, uh, you're really good at this. <laughs> just trade off like practicing to be like the next Oprah, right? I'm curious, Ron, you know, I think I do know this just because, you know, we've been friends for so long, but just to share with the audience, what motivated you to write this book? I didn't realize it was in motion since 1990, but like, what was that, you know, kind of that fire? I can imagine writing that many pages doesn't come with great ease <laughs> for everyone. So how did that come to be and what motivated you? So I had the idea for the book back when I was in my early 20s. It was, it was a novel at that time, The Thought. And the thought was that I would write this novel and it, uh, it would follow a central character through their life. And as their life situation changed and they went through different uh different challenging parts and, and uh, interesting uh, parts of their life, their worldview would expand. Uh, and you'd follow that person from, you know, infancy to old age. And, and um, it would be an, al an allegory for the evolution of society where we start out, you know, very, very uh, myopic and very tribal and, you know, eventually evolve into becoming um, the real definition of one human family uh, at the end. And then uh, probably about, six or seven years ago, it dawned on me that my own life experiences, you know, having been to space, doing four spacewalks, fighting in combat, you know, being shot at, you know, um, having, you know, active combat, ejecting from an F-16, living on the bottom of the ocean. You know, there's a lot of uh, literary tools in the toolbox that I could use to paint that same picture, that same allegory um, for the evolution of society. And so probably about, I've been writing it for a long time, but not with that intention. But at about six years ago, I started with the intention, okay, this is going to be a book. It's going to be called Floating in Darkness. It's like, it's interesting. Um, the title came before the book. Like, like a lot of times you write a book and then you have this whole big, you know, uh, survey monkey you put out on the thing and you, they, they, all, they do all these, um, what do they call that? When they test, when they test a, a product name or something or testing or market testing and see what no the name of the book is floating in darkness a journey of evolution the, and then we're, we're gonna write around that title so yeah that's uh that and the motivation was the, the crossroads that we're on right now and i'm hoping that the book will serve to nudge nudge towards the correct direction so how's that how's that dinner conversation with carmel the night that you're like well so babe you know this book i've been writing yeah. loosely for the last decade or two yeah. i actually want to make it nonfiction. how did she take that uh, that that pivot. 
Yeah. So you care quite a bit, you know, I think you become very personal and it's a beautiful part of the story, but how, love, how it is a love story. It's a love story. Um, that's a tough one. Um, and it's tough for me even to discuss now because, because Carmel is a very private person. Uh, and, uh, but she's a very giving person and very loving person a very caring person, very wonderful person. Um, so we had to strike a balance with that. Um, and I think we, I think we did strike a good balance. Um, throughout, uh, but it was, it was, it was challenging to do that. Um, um, because, because I made the decision that this story that I wanted to write since, you know, for 30 years or whatever, uh, is going to be nonfiction. <laughs> so. Because I remember when, yeah, when I first started reading it, my partner, I can imagine would also have a feel, some feelings about, you know, how public to make itself, especially because you're so public, you know, I think actually a little, little known fact you were the last person i see, saw speak publicly before COVID hit so wow. now i think about you know like the europe at cu boulder in march something like that oh. and the world imploded i spoke in public i saw for, you I mean, virtual. I mean not yeah so it's, it's interesting kind of to observe you and like you know you're obviously very public in 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 the career path and, and what you've, you've you've chosen to do and how you navigate that in partnership of like, and you know, big part of your personality is public, and yet that doesn't mean that the entirety of your life uh, should just obviously be so as, as well. So it's kind of a comment there. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a balance that everybody. I mean, in the age of social media, it's a yeah. balance that everybody has to strike. Uh, what the balance between what parts of their life they want to share and what remains private, and um, um, like, like for instance, my. Facebook page is is a hybrid page that I th I think Facebook offered at one point. I don't even know if you can do this anymore, but I have friends and I have followers, right? And so um, I would say 99% of everything that I post, I just post publicly. But there are things that I just want my friends to see and not my and not the public. And so um, that's that's a tool that that I can use to to walk that balance. Yeah, it's interesting probably don't want to get too much into the social media world without deep diving into politics, but have you seen Social Dilemma? I have, yeah. That was a really, maybe for audience who haven't had the chance to spend the 90 minutes on Netflix, that was really game changing for me and realizing really how we are being, you know, yeah. fed our own and manipulated our own information. <laughs> like, yeah. it, it, it's, it's no surprise that, you know, it's uh, such a divisive, um, not only country, but world right now. So. Yeah, that's why, why I said before that we're all in our own little echo chamber walled boxes that we've yeah. primarily been put in by social media, you know, intentionally yeah. or unintentionally. And the, the social dilemma, when I watch it, I, I don't think there was really anything in there that I didn't on some level already know. But what was really compelling about that documentary was uh, the extrapolation to the future. Like if things yeah. don't change, if things don't change, we're on that wrong path. So, yeah. you know, a lot of the a lot of the social media companies, a lot of the tech companies that are running these social media platforms need to realize the danger of what they're doing. Um, unfortunately, that's the, the very dangerous part of it is where their money comes from. It's their business model. And so, um, you know, I don't know if they're going to be able to self-regulate because the, the compelling motivation to not self-regulate uh, is, is very, very strong. Um, and so, yeah, that's a tough problem. It's a, it's, a, it's a social dilemma. Indeed. I think as part of what, like, for me also is thinking about that on a more intellectual level is like, I think there's been a wave in the last 10, 20, 30 years, maybe 10, 20, where, you know, tech is going to solve everything. Yeah. Or at least I think there's that, that narrative. I get asked that a lot. Well, do people really need bridges? Because aren't they going to have like teledoctors and so forth? And, you know, there's a total gap in reality in that thinking. Like if for us to exist entirely in a like, you know, social media world, and that's how we socially interact or that's how we engage with our families or your computer and Zoom, like I think we're all noticing, or at least I am, how that is influencing our, um, you know, our sense of community and our sense of well-being. It's hard when you're all alone. And so it's like this idea that technology itself is going to be the root of like solving all of these really difficult problems. You know, we think of ourselves at Bridges to Prosperity as pretty analog. But you can't imagine 
a really healthy economy when people are stuck at home. And you can't imagine really healthy people when you can't get to the doctor, even if you have this like great telemedicine. And so there's something about that film or that documentary in particular that helped kind of bridge that gap of like, not only is Facebook trying to feed on my data and make sure that I hear things that are self, um, you know, adding to my story and my narrative, but it's also like these tools that we thought were gonna be so powerful actually have tremendous amount of like, you know, dark side to them mm -hmm. as well, especially if you think that that's going to solve all the world's problems. So, there, I mean, Technology is just one of the tools in the toolbox, right? Yeah. And, and uh, you know, we all know that technology can be used for good or it can be used for, for evil. And so, so uh, a lot of the, the systemic underlying foundational things uh, need to be need to be fixed. And one of the things that we're hoping is that when the world recovers from this pandemic, uh, that we don't go back to the upside down status quo, that we realize that um, things don't have to be the way they were. They can be better. They can, we can do things better. Um, we can treat each other better. We can, we can realize that we're, we're a part of a community. Um, uh, let me pop up a comment from, uh, Luana, I had an experience like that uh, at a township in South Africa speaking to a group of 150 teen AIDS orphans. I told them about the ISS and uh, they were flabbergasted. They had no idea humans had been living and working in space for years. I had explained to them how to watch the ISS moving across the sky at night and they were so inspired, which was a great bridge to the statement about the importance of education and daring to dream. They have a bigger life. Ooh, and then... I don't know what the rest of the comment is because <laughs> it, it got truncated. Um, but yeah, I mean, it goes back to that comment about um, the, my biggest takeaway in my experience working in those parts of the world is, is our shared humanity. And I think you said this before, Avery, uh, that we have so much more in common than what separates us. Um, and I, I remember when I was growing up, my universe ended at the Hudson River. <laughs> I mean, nothing, nothing existed outside of, uh, you know, past the Hudson River. So um, that was, this, which is kind of still true. I mean, New York is kind of the center of the universe, but, but. Uh, hey, <laughs> well, I live between the Mississippi and the Missouri. So yeah, like so in America, I'm Dolly, I was, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm Dolly zooming. I'm Dolly zooming out to the scale of the universe, but I'm doing that without losing the importance of the, the Big Apple, so. <laughs> <laughs> no, it makes sense. It's all a matter of perspective. Well, Mindy's asking about autographed copies, so I feel like I want to elevate that. Can I get my autographed copy? I only have the manuscript, so how can we do that? that yeah, at they'll, they'll there should be a link there. Uh, I'll, ch I'll check and make sure, but we'll make sure we, we get it. Okay. We definitely want to do that. Um, oh, my son, Matt, oh, here's the rest of that comment from Laura. Oh, so her son Mason worked on a fundraiser platform for Bridges to Prosperity. So speaking of that, um, this is a time of year where we where we need to uh, think about others and uh, how how can people because we are kind of running up on our on our hour. How can people support your efforts and your work with Bridges to Prosperity? Yeah, thanks for asking, Ron. Um, you know, I, like we we're kind of mentioning this, I think, over drinks not that long ago, but. We really try to do our work as best possible with and for government. And so we're not going out and asking individuals here for money every day, every week. It's really one time a year. It's at the holiday season. Like, can you kind of give the gift of safe access? And so that's what we're in right now is actually our one time a year campaign uh, where we give our chance for our community to show us the love um, and help us make access possible. Uh, so sure it's on that link that was lifted earlier but bridges prosperity.org or find us on any of the instagram linkedin facebook um aforementioned tools and you know follow along share the story um if you feel so inclined help give that gift of safe access and that makes uh all the difference for us in helping to really you know connect these communities and show um, folks around the world that we are of one ilk you know this is you're not in this alone we are here to help make this as possible um for for your community and your country. Okay, and I popped up that other link as well. Oh, perfect. But, That's but, easier. But, but and all, and all, when all else fails, bridges to prosperity.org uh, will get you there. You got it, dear friend. Well, Amy, we're gonna we're gonna um, we're gonna end the live part of this. We're gonna continue on uh, to the to the recorded the part that we're gonna record and share later. Um, uh, and but it's time to say goodbye to our live 
viewing audience. And so I just want to, uh, before we do that, thank you for, for taking the time to, to share the stories with us. Um, and uh, also to thank you for all that you're doing, all you're doing for, for so many communities around the world. Uh, the difference that you're making, the lives that you're changing, the lives that you're saving through you and your organization um, and, the, and the efforts there. It's just so important. Um, and we're all so grateful for, for the work that you're doing. So thank you. I feel really supported, so I appreciate that. And thank you everyone for tuning in. It's been really, really fun. Yeah, let me just find this thing. Okay. Thanks everybody. Uh, next week, I'm going to have um, the CEO uh, on the show, the CEO of uh, uh, lottery.com, Tony DiMatteo. And uh, that's going to be an in interesting conversation. Um, and so think about some questions uh, uh, for, for the CEO of lottery.com because uh, there's a lot of, a lot of things that uh, lottery.com is doing uh, with the proceeds that are coming in from, uh, from those lotteries. And uh, it, it'll be an interesting conversation, I'm sure. So we'll see you next week. Have a great week, everybody. And, uh, and uh, keep up the good work. Thank you for joining us during this conversation from the Orbital Perspective. And thank you for being a part of an emerging unity on our planet. We are strongest when we are aligned around the truth of our underlying unity. Together, we are unstoppable and can build a positive, restorative future, a future that we would all want to be a part of. Please subscribe to the Orbital Perspective podcast and follow us on social media. Thank you for all that you're doing and all that you will do to help make life on our planet as beautiful as it looks from space.